Hi, we are Meredith and Lou, and we'd like to welcome you to our Brave New You Tribe web series, How to Be Fearless, in which we interview inspiring people who have faced up to their challenges and fears and gone on to achieve great things. This month, our guest is Kuljit Bamra MBE, who shares his story that takes him from polio to speed humps, from British Bangra music to receiving an honour from the Queen. We hope you enjoy his wit and wisdom as much as we did. I would like to welcome this month's guest, Kuljit Bamra MBE. Welcome, Kuljit. Thank you. Um, I'm thrilled that you agreed to come and talk with us. I thought it was 10 years since we filmed, but actually it's 15 years since we filmed together. Um, so I'm looking forward to catching up on everything, what you've been doing. So you're a musician, a composer, a producer, uh, recognised by the Queen, who awarded you uh, the MBE for services to Bangra and Asian music. Um, you've composed and produced over 2,000 songs and are responsible for the rise to fame of numerous Bangra and uh, Bollywood stars. Uh, you've worked collaboratively and independently on film scores for over 10 years, including the soundtracks for Bardi on the Beach, A Winter of Love, Bend It Like Beckham, and made appearances on The Guru, The Four Feathers, Brick Lane, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and many more besides. Uh, so these are incredible achievements. Thank you. And, um, and we'll hear uh, what else you've been up to in the ensuing years, not least uh, a radio star now. But it's not been a path of rose petals and gifts of fortune bestowed on you by the gods. I'm sure that there's been hard work, grit and determination being part of the, the whole picture. So you must have faced challenges and overcome difficulties along the way. And we'd like to know how you've dealt with those um, so that we too can learn some lessons for our own lives. So I'm going to go through the, the eight pillars of fearlessness. And the first one is passion. I know that your early career was actually as an engineer, uh, designing speed bumps for Richmond uh, Council. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so at what point did you rediscover your music and, uh, and find the courage to ditch the day job and uh, do music full time? Hmm. Uh, I mean, I was brought up in a very strict Indian family. So my father was, uh, actually, he's not as strict as he used to be, but he was very strict in the old days. And uh, because, you know, they'd come from East Africa and they were making their new home in England, although um, I've been playing music since I was about th three or four years old, uh, my father was always say, would always say, it's a hobby, it's only a hobby, you know. And so whenever I played my tablets or my instruments at home, I'd always... And he, walked, he opened the door. I'd always say, yeah, it's only a hobby, Dad. Don't worry. <laughs> so, um, and so I had this hobby that I really loved and I really enjoyed it. But, but my father said, you have to have a proper job. <laughs> and so uh, I followed in his footsteps to become an engineer and ended up working for Richmond Council designing speed humps. So I'm not going to take any letters of complaints if you've busted <laughs> your exhaust pipes. The change came. I mean, there was, a, there was a, a, what I call a prod from God, really. Um, I, and I went, I had a, a um, we'll talk about my leg later on, but I, I have a disability, so I walked with a, I caught polio when I was young, 
Uh, and I was always taught that uh, no one would marry me. Because, you know, the Indian culture is very, um, has certain views on disability. Um, but anyway, I had this proper job, and then uh, it was in my family's mind to get me married. So then I had uh, an arranged marriage. So I met this woman and then married her within five days. Um, and then things started to get a bit pear-shaped. Uh, and I'd always, you know, partly not, n nothing to do, you know, I'm not blaming her, but it's just, it was just like my whole thinking was no one was supposed to marry me anyway, so it's not really supposed to be that way. Um, and so uh, one of the prods from God, as I call it, was um, going through a divorce. And so I had this very acrimonious divorce that lasted for about five years. I lost my house. Um, I had like £70,000 on my credit card. Uh, there was no way I could actually pay even the interest on my credit card. So I, I just took that as a, as a sort of sign that I should do what my heart said I should do. And in that whole divorce process, in that five years, I began to realize that um, I was so locked into a certain pattern of believing how things should be. Have a proper job, you know, work hard, um, get married, have kids, have a house, all that sort of stuff that my mum and dad, again, no criticism on that to them, but that's the world that they created for me, and I really believed that world. Um, and then suddenly I had an opportunity of like entertaining another world possibilities. And so that was, you know, things are already going wrong. So what could what could go wrong even more than for me to follow my dream? Um, but I also have this idea that uh, you know we all have dreams, and I, I have this strange, crazy idea that I don't think whoever created the human form would give us the ability to dream if it couldn't come true. That'd be like a really silly thing to do, wouldn't it? It's like suddenly, you know, okay, let's make him dream and then I'll... So I, I really... That'd be really cruel, It'd be it? really cruel, yeah. So I, um, I, I've always had this um, idea that whatever visions or whatever dreams I have, I have to do them. And so um, I had that sort of... The, the, the um, logistics were, in, were correct for me to... And then I just handed my notice in and then went into music. And the moment I did that, um, it seemed like all the ducks were in a line. They were all waiting for me. I suddenly got a phone call from Angela Lloyd Webber's company and I got a, a gig in Bombay Dreams. Everything was waiting for me to make that move. And I sometimes think, oh, my God, supposing I, <laughs> supposing I didn't do that, I'd still be at a desk you know, designing speed humps. So um, that's, it was, you know, a combined sort of force of all those things. Like yeah. the, it seemed like the, the logistics were right. And also my thinking was um, I didn't want to be restrained in any way. And it, everything seemed like it was forcing me to, do, to live a particular way. I wanted to be free. Um, so, yeah, and, and, and there's a lot more, you know, to go with that. But I think they were the main two things that had me then follow my dream. And... Uh, I expected it to all go wrong, but it didn't. <laughs> and, and so then you started, you were producing Bangra music, you, you sort of introduced that sound to the UK, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, I think Bangra, um, those of you that know about Bangra will know, Bangra, the word Bangra's been around for a long time, actually, and Bangra is a dance form from the Punjab in India, but it's now become a musical genre as well. So I, I always try to distinguish between Bangra dance and Bangra music. Yeah. So Bangra music was created in the UK. And my mum uh, is a singer and we used to sing in temples. So 
as a child, I was sort of forced to play the tabla and accompany her in temples. Um, and I used, I used to love playing instruments. And I had this natural curiosity for trying to figure out how things work. You know, I want to know everything. And so that curiosity had me to, led me to sort of learn more about instruments and music. I could listen to records and figure out how they're put together. I could tell how the drum kits were mixed and the singing was, they put echo in it. I could just hear all those things. What happened was my mum uh, is a singer, so we used to sing religious music. Um, and while I was listening to Indian music, I was also listening to Stevie Wonder and George Benson and Michael Jackson and the Bee Gees. And I noticed that when I, whenever I put on an Indian record and then put on an English record after it, the Indian records sounded terrible. I mean, the songs weren't terrible, but they just sounded terrible. There's no bass, there's no um, good sound to them. There's no meat in the sound. And I wanted my mum's records and Indian music to have that punch. And so I began to explore um, at home. I had, you know those, I don't know if you know, you know reel-to-reel tape recorders? Sorry, I'm not insulting your age. But anyway, you know, so, these, so we had these two uh, reel-to-reel tape recorders. And I used to record my favourite songs onto, onto tape at high speed so that I could then slow it down and I could figure out you know, it sounded like it sounded like that, but I could tell how it's put together. And then I'd cut the tape up in my bedroom and I'd loop it around the picture frame and the doorknob and it'd go around in a big loop and I'd play along with it. And so I thought, hey, actually drum kits sound good with tabla and maybe some keyboards and maybe some bass guitar. So I began to produce um, records. Uh, my mum was an EMI artist, so we travelled to India every year to record her albums. And I think when I was 13 or 14, I said to her, um, I can do it here. And she said, well, who's going to do the music? And I said, well, I, I can do it. And she said, how will you do it? You know? And I said, there's a way of adding things. And, I, and, I, and, I, and she trusted me. And then I, I produced this album for them, and it became a massive hit. At that time, the Indian community was, because it was the 70s, and we just had um, the Bee Gees and Saturday Night Fever, it's all about disco and dance, um, the Indian community were also beginning to, to get that. I think the whole world was sort of dancing at that time. And so I think people were, had itchy feet at the time. And then suddenly I started to mix bass drums and, and funky rhythms with Indian rhythms, and it began to take off. And, and that's how Bangra came in my world of age. Even though you say that things sort of once you'd made that decision that this was your dream and this is the road that you were going to travel, there are always going to be things that crop up that sort of... Uh, force you to make decisions along the way and your sense of purpose that drives you through so no matter what comes whatever choices arise decisions you have to make it's those that uh, are your guiding lights I have a I have a sense that everyone has a purpose and I know it's see I could stay in bed all day and just have a probably have a nice time just sleeping I don't know really. but um there's two things for me. I don't want to die half empty. That's, I, want, I mean, I know it's a silly thing to say, but I want to die fully used up, <laughs> whatever that means. And then secondly, I think I have a purpose. I think everyone has a purpose. Um, and so I, it would be foolish to not live that. I mean, that's what gets me out of bed, even though bed is comfortable many days of the week. <laughs> but creating a purpose... I don't want to get... You know, if I was to read my own tombstone, I was a bit morbid, but I'd want it to say he designed speed humps for Richard Council. You know, 
uh, it should say something like he he loved his life or he he did this or he had a unique um, set of skills that he could offer people. Um, so I, I believe that everyone has a unique set of skills and talents or even or gifts, whatever you want to call them. And it just it would just be a shame if you didn't live that fully. So that's that's the passion that keeps me going. I love. I love. I mean, I work really hard, but it doesn't feel like I'm working. I mean, it, when I was working as an engineer, it felt like I was working, and then you go and work, and then you come home and play. But you're so tired that you've got no energy to play. Um, but now I work because I love it, and I'm sort of working more than I ever knew. But I, it's not wor- it's not work for me. But it's fulfilling my passion. I have certain things. This might sound arrogant, but I I have things that I feel only I can do on this planet. There's no one else on this planet that can do those particular things that I think I can do. And I don't mean that in, well, maybe, maybe I am arrogant, but uh, I don't mean it in an arrogant way. Uh, and I, and I, I believe that's the same for everybody. Um, my, my skills and um, talents are on stage, so they're easy to identify, so people can people can say, oh, you know, you're good at doing that, or I like it when you do that, or you're talented at doing that. Not everybody's on stage. And so, but I still believe everybody has a unique set of skills and gifts and a purpose to fulfill. I'd like to make a difference on the planet. Um, And I feel that life is precious. I don't think we're a fluke on this planet. Um, I know some people do think, I don't want to get into philosophy, but I mean... From a Western philosophical point of view, people, some, many people will say we're born into the planet or onto the planet, and then we try ne- to negotiate the planet. And in Eastern philosophy, they say we're born out of the planet. If you're born out of the planet, there's nothing to negotiate. Everything is there right in front of you. And so I have a sort of zest for life. Um, I don't believe necessarily in reincarnation, although I could be persuaded to believe that. But that's not what keeps my current life in check um, I don't have somewhere that I need to be later on right now is the most important thing for me and the people that I talk to like you and the people here you're the most important thing right now at this moment yes. um, and so I think there's a zest for life and I think it's an amazing uh, precious thing <laughs> yeah. so who would you say that were the sort of key people that have inspired you and helped you along the way I mean, I draw from every single person that I meet. Every single person in this room is, is a one possible f- way of living human life. I learn that possibility from everybody. I think it's great. It's, it's, it's a real honour to have a, um, a mentor. You know, if you look at the best sportsmen in the world, you'd think, why do they need a mentor? They're the best person in the world. But they've all got mentors and coaches, yeah. haven't they? So I don't have one that's allocated. Uh, I think my mother's been great for me, I have to say, because I... I learned so much from her at an early age, and then I rebelled against her. <laughs> so I, I sort of, uh, I need her so I can rebel against her. You yeah. know what I mean? You know what you want because you know what you don't want. Exactly, yeah. yeah. You li- where you live, you've um, raised your children, you have a studio, um, you're still there, and it's, you've been, been there a long time. It, is that place that you've built around you, around your life and your work, um, is that your your place? I have a place in Goa, which I go to twice a year, so that's where I really 
um, switch off doing stuff, but my mind is constantly restless, so that never switches off. Um, and my, yeah, my home is my home, actually. It's, it's, a, it's a weird house because it's not a traditional house, you know. So my mother still calls it a studio. She goes, you going to the studio? I said, yeah, I'm going home, you know. <laughs> but in her mind, it's not a home, you know. It's not a place you take somebody. It's, it's a sort of mishmash of, a, there's a recording studio downstairs and there's sort of like a bachelor paddy type thing upstairs. And so um, it is a workplace. My, my life has become... I, work's not the right word, but my life has become my work, um, or what I ex- what I express, you know. So I, it, when I use work, I don't mean work. I mean that's what I am. That's that's my purpose. That's what I do. That's who I am. So that is my home. Mm. And uh, I travel a lot on tour when I play with other bands. And my hotel for that night is also my home, you know. <laughs> so yeah, it's always good to come back to base. Yeah. But I don't really have. Um, I don't go. Oh, I'm a home. Because when I'm on stage, I'm also on home, at home, and mm. if I'm travelling, I'm at home. So it's a weird, it's a weird word. They're all homes for me, actually. Yeah. So you're a snail, really. You carry your home on your back. Probably, yeah. I'm a snail. <laughs> yeah. I walk like a snail. <laughs> how has having a disability in the world that you play? Um, how have you um, adapted your playing to your disability? I think more importantly, my disability has. I mean, it had a massive effect on my life. So I spent most of my, until the age of about 25, thinking I'm not right. And also my mum telling me that I wasn't right. No one would marry me, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, and there were times, like when I was 11, I used to walk around on crutches. And uh, I remember, I remember um, like for example, waiting to cross the road and uh, people would come to me and say, would you like some help to cross the road? <laughs> yes, please. So, um, and I, I ended up taking care of people because, and I, I think, I don't know, my, my wit or my charm, whatever you want to call it, it, it's like a sort of device to rescue people because I, you know, my aunties used to cry, oh, what a nice boy, who's going to marry him? And, Tut, tut, tut. And I thought, my mum used to start crying. And I thought, I'm going to start crying. But I don't cry anyway, so I'm not going to cry. Um, and it all gets very complicated. So yeah. I had to sort of rescue people from that. Um, and I felt uh, it was really, really, really tough as a kid. I mean, it's, my father fought for me to go to Southall Grammar School. So the, our school was next to my house, in South, my mum's house in Southall. But I used to get picked up in a, in a minibus and taken to a school for handicapped children. And then my dad fought for me to go to Southall Grammar, and he finally won the case. And so I ended up going to Southall Grammar School, and um, I got my timetable for the week, and it said games, PE. That's all I could see, swimming. And I thought, oh my God, I don't know, have they made, um, have they made sort of allowances for me? What do, what do I do? And of course, no one really knew how to. So I ended up counting cricket balls or looking after. I mean, I'm joking about it now, but it was really horrible at the time. Mm. Um, and also simple things like, um, like chatting up girls, you know, I mean, I couldn't dance, um, so I'm not, I wasn't good at sports. Actually, I mean, I, I never really wanted to chat up girls, mm. but it, that's what everyone did, because I mean, I never was supposed to be with a girl anyway, so <laughs> it was never going <laughs> to... Why waste no, the time? Why waste time, you know? <laughs> so, um, yeah, it became, it's really, and the, the, in regards to performance... The, the most awkward thing for me ever is walking, walking on stage when people introduce me. 
because I know people go, oh, what's that on his leg? <laughs> and, uh, you know, please put your hands together for Kuti Bamra. Clink, clonk, cluck, cluck. Yeah, um, but I've got, uh, I've got a lot more used to that and more comfortable with mm. it. Um, in, uh, when I was in Bender Light Beckham, we were nominated, myself and Howard Goodall were nominated for a, an Olivier Award. So we went to the Olivier Award ceremonies. And um, during the sound check, uh, there was, it was really weird actually, because they, I think for the cameraman, they practiced where all the people who were nominated are sitting. So I got on stage for the sound check because I was playing as well. And in the audience was a cardboard cutout of me in a seat, which is really weird. So it was like me playing to a cardboard. Anyway, I realized that that's where I was supposed to sit. And um, I thought, my God, I hope I don't... I mean, if I win, I'll have to get up and it's going to be like, you know, he's going to get to the stage and I'll, I might fall over on, and it's like, oh, my God. So I had the same thought that I always have. And then I thought, you know, I just say, can I just sit in the wings? And they said, yeah, sure. <laughs> so it's like, it was as easy as that. And yet uh, my whole life has been about negotiating yeah. things. And the moment I became comfortable with it, and it became me, um, well, it is me, actually. This is the way it's supposed to be, actually. I've got no choice anyway. So I could just live with it, but it took me so long to get comfortable with it. And it was only when I started meeting people and they were comfortable with it that I then, then became more comfortable with it myself. Mm. That voice is still there, mm. and mm. It's, not, it's not as much as um, it used to be. So I was once in a show called The Far Pavilions in the West End and I'd been banned for driving, so I had to catch a train to go to rehearsals and it was right the other side of, of, of London and uh, I had to get on the train at rush hour, so I've never done this before in my life. So I saw everybody just go crazy running after their trains and because I can't run, I never had that in my life. Why would you run after a train? Because I can't run and so... And these guys were, and I know, I knew these guys when they when they ran after the train, they caught it. They'd be running for the rest of the day. It'd be like everything would be like. But with me, because I can't run, I have this sense of, I'll get the next train, (laughs) and everything's fine. I mean, in terms of like pitfalls, I think um, I would say describe myself as very sensitive. I would say, I mean, I, I'm just generally sensitive. I think musicians are sensitive people because you know to hear pitch, you probably have to be sensitive. You know, my dad can't hear the difference between la and la. You go. It sounds like law to me. <laughs> so, um, so I'm sensitive, and then sometimes I have to somehow switch that off, you know, because I, 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 I can get not hurt, but I can, somebody can say something, and I take it very heavily. Um, and I know that's, that person's not an evil person. So, I, um, yeah, I think just overthinking things. I used to have this idea of who I thought I was, <laughs> or I am, and... When I met people and they said, oh, you're, you're this and you're really good at that, I used to think, oh, don't tell me who I am, I know who I am. You know? And uh, I realised um, that I am that. You know, whatever, whoever somebody says, someone says to me, you're this, I said, well, that's who I am. If someone says to me, you, will you present a radio show, I'll say yes, like I'm a yes man. Because if they think I can do it, that means I can do it, even though the voice on my head says, no, you can't do it, you know. So suddenly I've got a radio show. I trust other people's view of me and I step into that, mm. you know, and that takes some, a bit of courage sometimes. There's a kind of perseverance in, in anyone that takes uh, not the easy route. Um, how, what keeps you going? What's that perseverance in your life? What tools do you have? If I think, I might think, okay, I'll just lie in or then I, I feel like I'm going to waste my life. 
I think the main thing is I really love what I do. I just love it. I mean, I, I love every part of it. Uh, you know, for example, in music, I can have an idea, you know, one of, one of you in here could go, la, 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 la. I could turn that into a record within a week. And it would be a good record. <laughs> and suddenly that, I love the idea that something just, some sort of nonsensical energy in your brain suddenly becomes material. And I've done that a lot, and I know I can do that. And so I think, I just think I wouldn't, it would be a shame not to be my purpose every day, whatever that is. I want to live life fully. So from that then, what have been some real highs for you? All the highs have been the, have been the things that I didn't think I would ever do. So, for example, when I got, off, when I got offered the job of playing in Bombay Dreams, and uh, I was playing at Pizza Express with a saxophone player called Andy Shepard, and um, in the audience was the person that organised orchestras for West End shows, Sylvia Addison. So she came up to me and said, uh, "Call you, I'd like you for a show. And I thought, OK, great, uh, book me. And so she, booked, she said, right, you know. Um, and I thought it was one show. Like, I didn't think it was going to go for two years. I thought it was just like, you booked me for a show. OK, right. So, so suddenly I had, um, you know, I was in a West End show. And that was really incredible for me because I... I got to experience um, another platform of expression of music in a particular environment. Um, another, another peak for me, I've had a few hit songs. Um, it's funny because I've, I've probably done over 2,000 songs now and I think I've got 11 hit songs, which I always think is quite a low hit rate. <laughs> because, <laughs> no, because the thing is you can't make a hit song, you know, you can't, you can't even write a song, you can't write a hit song. It, it, the hit's not really in your control. Anyway, so I've had a, a few hit songs, and um, what I love is when people say to me, oh, have you heard this song? You know, can you play it? And I said, yeah, I can play it. <laughs> it's mine. <laughs> so uh, I enjoy that. Um, and I think that one of the first peaks was hearing my song on the radio, my own song on the radio. It's like, oh, my God, you know, this is just... It's a feeling you can't really explain to people. Yeah. Uh, suddenly, it's, you turn this knob and it comes out. It's like, that's my song, and I'm listening to it in my car. <laughs> I've begun to work with orchestras recently, which has been really amazing. Um, I, I like to constantly step outside the envelope. I, I just I I do that as a rule. You know, maybe that's a, maybe that's an answer to a previous question. But it, it's if someone says to me, "Can you stand on this table?" My immediate answer is no. But I say, "Well, yeah, well, yeah, give give me a hand and we'll do it." <laughs> so I'm like that yeah, because if you think I can, then I'll I'll do it with you or on my own. So I'm constantly expanding myself, constantly learning things. I always want to push my envelope and challenge myself. And so the peaks have usually been to do with that. So I think, yeah, getting a role in a West End movie, in a, you know, playing in films. Yeah, the Charlie Chocolate yeah. Factory, yeah. So the Oompa Loompa song is a Bangra song. So if you, if you watch a Dwayne Depp film, so that's all my, all my rhythms in there. Then I recently played in Do Doctor Who. So I did an Indian version of, oh, you know, which is really amazing. But yeah, sometimes I have to pinch myself because I'm in Abbey Road and I'm playing in Doctor Who. And then suddenly I'm on TV and that's my tablet and then I'm watching like a, a food advert and my drum's in the background. And there's more to come, you know what I mean? Because I, I, I have that attitude of, okay, let's do it. I don't know how to do it. I think I know how I can make it work. Let's just do it. That sort of constant wanting to grow and, and pushing yourself further than mm. where you've been. And, and then you were invited by the Queen to um, receive your Of course, yeah, that was another peak. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, uh, so what was that like? 
That was that was incredible, actually. I had no, I would, I never even ever imagined that I'd have an honour. I had a pile of junk mail on my desk, which was lying there for four or five days. And I thought, oh, let me just, I throw them away, and I'll just. One, and I picked one up, and it had proper seals on it. It wasn't usually they're printed on, aren't they? You know those sort of wax seals. And this one had a real seal on it. I thought, oh, this Reader's Digest is splashing out, you know. But anyway, when I when I opened it, it said um, it was from the uh, the cabinet office, you know, and it said you've been um, nominated for a an MBE. Um, and then there was another letter next to it, which was just completely, it had two lines with the two tick boxes, and it said, I do accept, I do not accept. And I thought, why would I not accept? You know, anyway, I, I, I was completely blown away by this. So I, I folded up the... So no oh, warning or anything? No warning at all, no. Yeah, completely, um, completely random. And I could have thrown it in the bin. I mean, I'm sure maybe, they, hopefully they would have called me. <laughs> but... Uh, and so I put the envelope back on my desk and I sat quietly for half an hour. And then I called, I called my daughter and I said, I think I've got an image. Went, oh, my God! You know. When I got the date of my investiture, it said, this is the date of your investiture. And I thought, I looked at my diary and I had a gig in Portugal with Andy Shepherd. And I thought, that's really, I mean, I can't cancel what I do to get a medal for it. <laughs> because that would be really weird. I can't just, oh, yeah, I'm going to get my medal. Sorry, Andy, I'm not doing your gig. <laughs> And, and I don't cancel gigs anyway, but I thought, what do I do? You know, so I rang up this number on the letter. And he's like, hello, Buckingham Palace. And I thought, oh my God, is that the Queen? You know? <laughs> and, you know, and it was... Um, uh, and, and anyway, it wasn't the Queen, but uh, uh, I said, uh, I said I've, got, um, I've got a letter for an investiture and I, and I, can't, I can't make that date because I'm, I'm doing the thing that you know, I get the medal for. <laughs> I was trying to explain it to her. And she said to me, most people move their diaries for the Queen. And I went... Oh, you know. But anyway, she says, "Okay, then, can you do Windsor Castle?" So I went to Windsor, Windsor Castle, and the Queen was there. And then she, uh, as I went up to her, you have to say uh, you can only you can only res- respond to her. You can't start like "How you doing, mate?" sort of thing. So you have to so, and then you have to say "Your Majesty," and then after "Your Majesty," you can say "Ma'am." So she said to me, um, "I really enjoyed your performance in Bombay Dreams," and I went. What do you mean you enjoyed it? I couldn't believe it. She, surely she didn't recognise me from Bombay Dreams. There's like 40 of us on stage. I was a little Indian man tapping some drums on the corner. And I thought, and that wasn't in the sort of resume or anything. So I thought, it, my mind was like, and I thought, she's got it wrong. I mean, and I, I'd, I had met her once before at um, Westminster Abbey. I'd played there for her. So I said, uh, yes, Your Majesty. Uh, I, and, and we also met at Westminster Abbey, you know, trying to politely correct her. And she said, yes, I know that, but I enjoyed your performance in uh, From My Dreams. Oh, my God, she really... She really knows. She really knows. And I I just... um, Anyway, and then I spoke some more gibberish. (laughs) She asked me something, (laughs) and I just lost the plot. I think it was a a validation. Having been a civil engineer designing speed humps and then going in to follow my dream, and for the Queen to say, you're doing okay, I thought, yes. And so moving forward... What for the future? I've got this mission called uh, Demystifying Indian Music. As some of you might know, Indian music is taught through a guru-disciple tradition, which is amazing, and it's an oral tradition. And so, for example, with, with uh, drumming, you learn to speak the sounds first, and you learn to play them. So you go... Now, the problem with that for me is, I don't think people who can't speak Indian could say that. I mean, how do you spell Tidigaratuna? I don't know how to spell it in English. So, you know, Sgt. Pepper album, the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper album, it's been 50 years since that album came out. And there definitely aren't more non Indians 
playing Indian instruments. So even though Ravi Shankar came to the West and the Beatles introduced him to the West and people really got into Indian music, somehow it got buried, I'm <laughs> um, being a bit rude, it sort of got buried in that time. So now, if you remember going to school and playing the recorder, you got your recorder and then you got the music. So you played the music on your recorder. In Indian music, there is no the music. There's no music to play. It's all improvised in the moment, which is an amazing thing to do. Um, but... Ravi Shankar, bless his soul, is no longer with us. No one can play his music. That's the downside. The reason we're playing Beethoven and Mozart and Paganini is because those guys wrote down something that we could all follow. So at the moment, I've um, uh, launched... I've invented... Now, because I've been working in the theatre, and I was, when I found out it was more than one show, <laughs> and uh, I thought, my God, I've got to be in this show eight, eight times a week for like, the rest of my life. <laughs> And supposing I want to go on holiday or supposing I'm ill. And so they said, well, you need to have deputies to stand in for you. And I thought, no one can stand in for me. Uh, and I thought, actually, no, my success in that world is being replaceable. So in the Indian tradition, everyone is, the emphasis is on being irreplaceable. And you're watching the great guru perform. And um, in the Western world, there are great gurus as well. But there are also people who just play in an orchestra and don't want to be a guru. They just want to play music. They don't want to compose. They want to play what's written for them. So with Tabla, I've invented a notation system that allows people to play Indian drums by just reading like a stave. So left, right, closed, open, and suddenly you're running. So that's my, that's my baby at the moment. And uh, schools in Portsmouth are now using it, which is great. So mainstream music teachers are teaching tabla in their classrooms and Birmingham starts in September. And that means a whole new world for Indian musicians will, will open up because they can write down their music, they can publish it and earn money from it. And also when they're dead <laughs> or when they're alive, other people can play it. And that's something that's never happened before in Indian music. Music is just an incredible thing, isn't it? You can't see it and it makes you cry and it makes you dance. So it is magical. But Indian music is no more magical than Western music. But somehow it got stamped in that time period where it was to do with flying carpets and rope tricks and spirituality and stuff. And I don't think that's done us any good. So that's my next mission, and that's my current mission at the moment. Looking back at that younger self, the 20-year-old you, what would you say? Everything's going to be okay. Looking back, I think life takes care of us, you know. I mean, as I said before, we're born out of this... We're born in this world. This world is ours. This is us, actually. That's me over there, in a way, you know. So... There's nothing to sort of um, battle against or fight. Everything around you is for you and for that thing or that person. So I would say something like, yeah, don't, don't be scared. Everything will be okay. Just trust, yeah, trust your dreams and trust your heart. I think that's one for all of us, isn't it? Thank you very much, Kuldit. That was brilliant. Thank you. Thank you, Kuljit, for your insights and openness and for sharing your experiences, stories and music that help us to think perhaps about our own lives in a different way. We would also like to thank Find My Zone, Radio Rooftop and Emmy Hotel for hosting us and to Electra and Create Lab Films for helping us to make this web series possible. And finally, 
A huge thank you to everyone for coming to our live events or for listening or watching online. If you're enjoying the series so far, please like, rate and review on your podcast or video provider. See you next time. Thank you.